This is Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Mark Maselli. And I'm Margaret Flinter. Well, Margaret, there's a new person at the helm of the Department of Health and Human Services. Sylvia Matthews Burwell sailed with relative ease through the confirmation process, receiving accolades from both sides of the aisle. And she is taking over the helm from Kathleen Sebelius, who resigned in the wake of the rocky rollout of the insurance exchanges. It's a daunting task that she faces. HHS has a trillion-dollar budget, 80,000 employees, and they're really still in those first throws of the launch of the Affordable Care Act. Not to mention the myriad other areas she must oversee, Margaret. She has the authority over drug regulation, disease monitoring, as well as medical research, all issues related to population health. Most recently, she was the president's director of the Office of Management and Budget. Before that, she was president of the Walmart Foundation, chief operating officer of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, and deputy chief of staff to President Bill Clinton. So obviously no stranger to high-stress, high-profile jobs. Analysts say she needs to hit the ground running. Former HH Secretary Mike Levitt said her first priority should be to beef up relationships with state insurance commissioners, many of whom are still reeling from issues related to the first open enrollment, and that she must act quickly to set standards in place for 2015 open enrollment, which technically speaking is just around the corner. She really has to just imbue confidence in the department's ability to marshal its forces around the continued rollout of the Affordable Care Act, and there's still going to be some growing pains. But she seems to have inspired confidence in some of the nation's top politicians, perhaps we could say top critics and corporate entities thus far. So I think her tenure holds promise. Outgoing Secretary Kathleen Sebelius did uh, spend some time recently thanking cohorts and supporters at the recent Health Data Palooza gathering in Washington. She lauded the distance they've traveled thus far in increasing health IT adoption to the nation's hospitals and health practices and the millions of newly insured Americans under the Affordable Care Act. She noted that HHS will continue to focus on reforms that optimize health outcomes and help us really reduce those costs. That's something our guest today has spent a tremendous amount of her scholarly energy examining, Mark. Dr. Elizabeth Bradley is the director of the Yale Global Health Initiative and also the co-author of The American Healthcare Paradox, Why Spending More is Getting Us Less. She examines why healthcare costs are so expensive in this country and why outcomes still rank poorly compared to other industrialized countries. We'll also hear from Lori Robertson, managing editor of factcheck.org. But no matter what the topic, you can hear all of our shows by going to chcradio.com. And as always, if you have comments, please email us at chcradio.com or find us on Facebook or Twitter because we love hearing from you. We'll get to our interview with Dr. Elizabeth Bradley in just a moment. But first, her is our producer, Marianne O'Hare, with this week's headline news. I'm Marianne O'Hare with these healthcare headlines. The Veterans Affairs healthcare scandal has done something that few other issues have achieved in this hyper-partisan Congress, unite members of opposing parties in support of swift action to reduce veterans' waits for care and hold VA officials accountable for misrepresenting waiting times. The House overwhelmingly approved a bill that would allow veterans facing long waits for VA care to see private doctors, suspend VA bonuses, and require an outside assessment. Early audits of over 40 VA facilities across the country shows the delay times and cover-ups were far more systemic than originally thought, with tens of thousands of vets possibly being forced to wait many months to be seen. At this year's American Medical Association meeting, discussion was fierce surrounding, yet again, another failure by Congress to fix the sustainable growth rate formula that reimburses physicians for treating Medicare patients. 
There had been a bipartisan solution ready to sail through Congress, but it wasn't acted upon in time before the end of the session. Ire was so high over this in a long line of attempts to repeal the SGR that a decision was made to have an annual review of the AMA's lobbying efforts. A number of trade groups and accountable care organizations have sent letters to HHS Secretary-elect Sylvia Matthews Burwell urging her to take swift action on improving impediments to implementation of telemedicine protocols such as remote patient monitoring and telehealth consults. Currently, telemedicine is governed by a patchwork quilt of restrictions on use and payment models, which is, in many cases, hindering adoption. Those signing the letters come from across the spectrum. Qualcomm, the American Telemedicine Association, large ACO organizations like Geisinger. Secretary Burwell has the power to override some of those restrictions. And want to keep that newborn on track for not developing asthma or allergies? Put away the antibacterial soap and heavy-duty cleaners and let them crawl around in the muck. An eight-year study of children from birth to several years shows those kids exposed to cat and mouse dander, or even cockroach dust had lower rates of asthma and other allergies by age three than their germ-protected counterparts. The eight-year study collected dust samples from the homes of newborns and tracked that data over the length of the study. Results are somewhat counterintuitive considering the highest rates of asthma and allergies are among kids growing up in urban environments awash in such allergens. It's the latest wrinkle in the hygiene hypothesis, the notion that exposure to bacteria trains the infant immune system to attack bad bugs and ignore harmless things like pollen and cat dander. I'm Mariano O'Hare with these health care headlines. We're speaking today with Dr. Elizabeth Bradley, director of the Yale Global Health Initiative and faculty director of the Global Health Leadership Institute. She's co-author of the book, The American Healthcare Paradox, Why Spending More is Getting Us Less, which examines reasons for America's extremely high health cost and relatively poor outcomes. Dr. Bradley is a professor of public health policy at Yale School of Public Health. She's earned her bachelor's at Harvard, her MBA at the University of Chicago, and her PhD at Yale. Uh, Dr. Bradley, welcome to Conversations on Healthcare. Thank you so much, Mark. Betsy, it's a great book, first of all. It was a wonderful read, The American Healthcare Paradox. And you explore how much we're spending per capita on healthcare in this country and how we rank uh, relative to other industrialized nations in terms of outcomes. And the subtitle of your book is Why Spend More is Getting Us Less, suggests we're not doing as well as we could. And your focus at Yale is on global health initiatives. So you're well positioned to comment on which country has the best healthcare system in the world. So can you explain to our listeners the paradox and help us understand how we actually stack up relative to other countries around the world? The paradox in the American healthcare system is, as you said, we spend about one and a half times to two times as much per capita as any other country in the world, and yet our health outcomes are among some of the worst. Actually, for instance, our maternal mortality rate is six times that of Sweden. Our life expectancy is six years less than the best countries life expectancy is. And and these differences, these disparities go on and on across diabetes, heart disease, teenage pregnancy. It goes on and on. Uh, And so that's a paradox. How could we spend so much and get so little? We do, however, get some things for that. Of course, we do have tremendous access to high-technology equipment, kidney transplants, knee replacements, etc., some of those very, very technical pieces. But when you look overall to the big health outcomes, we're just not doing as well as countries that actually spend less than we do. So to do this work, Betsy, you took a 
deep dive uh, all around the world and examined health data from some 30 countries. And he came to the, this conclusion that while we spend close to 20% of our GDP on healthcare in the, in the United States, and I think that's roughly $3 trillion per year, we're spending far less than other countries on social services, which goes a long ways in those countries to improving population health. And they do that, of course, by heading off problems early. Can you give us some examples of how other countries are offsetting health care costs by investing in social programs on the front end? Maybe I'd just give one statistic that puts this in frame. For every $1 the United States spends on health care, we spend another $0.90 cents on social services. But in Western Europe, for every $1 spent on health care, another $2 is spent on social services. So although we're all spending about the same amount of the total GDP when you look at both of these together, we just favor heavily the medical care and the health care side, and we're less favorable on the social service side. Education, housing, transportation, nutrition, rehabilitation. Now, what do other countries do? How do they do this differently? The place that we were most impressed with uh, is really spending a moderate amount of money and getting, honestly, the best health outcomes is Scandinavia. We wanted to go there to understand what could we learn. We know we can't do the identical same thing. We're much bigger. We're much more diverse. We have different history, different relationship to our government. But what is there any mechanism they're using that we could learn something from? And one of their clever ways in which they deal with this is they do at a county level, they do joint budgeting and planning for all the social services and the medical care services. So it is actually done in an integrative way. Somebody in the county government could say, we're going to put a little more in housing, then we won't have to spend quite so much money in the emergency room. And it's the same system that benefits from that offset, which we really don't have in the United States. We don't have a local government area in which we can do that joint planning. And really, one side would benefit from the other side and vice versa, sort of as one system to try to use our scarce dollars to make the greatest health outcome we possibly could. You know, it seems to me to be uh, another one of the paradoxes that everybody's talking about the social determinants of health, but we don't see a lot of uh, real activity happening in the ground, as you're suggesting. And you had the opportunity to sit with a whole gaggle of uh, thought leaders uh, for your book who figured out the formula. So can you highlight some of those organizations that are really improving care on that front end, the support services, and uh, what sort of healthcare savings on the back end have been achieved, if any as yet? It's interesting because we found these sort of homegrown innovations in the United States across diverse sectors. I mean, they were in private sector, public sector. Sometimes they were really driven by the healthcare providers. Sometimes they were really driven by local government. I think even we will start to see more and more driven by the employer base. So one of the learnings was for us is just echoing our country's way. We're extremely diverse, and we saw many different small-level innovations. Our big challenge in the United States always is, how do you take a good like idea like that and scale it across such a diverse country so we can really multiply the effect of the innovation? But uh, a couple of programs I would turn to, 
Uh, one is in Portland, Oregon, um, called Sea Train, and it's a collaboration between the Oregon Health and Science University, a very large academic medical center, and Central City Concern, which is a community center. And the community center almost acts as uh, the hinge between what is a high-tech medical care system and what is really housing, immigration support, legal support, education, nutrition, cooking support, exercise. Uh, and what the uh, Oregon group did was they established a joint governance structure in which the hospital and health system actually provided support to the central city concern by placing and guaranteeing slots with primary care coordinators, basically, in the central city. And any patient that was at risk for really post-discharge readmission or having intense sort of social service needs they identified early and they called they put them on the C train and they got the full case management and then this community center really was engaged and helped them be sure that they could access services that were already paid for often the hospitals may not even realize or have the energy and the resources to connect people in, but if you can just get the connection, the resources there and sometimes underutilized. Hmm. The other piece we saw in this is when the healthcare system when it got involved with some of these community, state, and local social services, there was an automatic, aha, okay, we're going to track things now. We're, we're paying attention. There was a certain, I think, rigor that came to the management of both of these kinds of services to make them both better. They did a randomized trial. They found their patients had lower mortality, better quality of care, and the hospitals actually funding expansion mm-hmm. to offer this service to even their high income and donor population that's coming in as patients. So, Betsy, when we talk about uh, health and health care and social spending, we're inevitably going to talk a little bit about politics or the political yeah. climate. And not too long ago, the food programs yeah. were cut by billions of dollars, and that's just one example of many that really goes against what your findings are. What are your thoughts about the kinds of political incentives that might be deployed to improve social program spending, um, specifically as a hedge against higher health care costs? And tell us about that, and, and also the degree to which you think the Affordable Care Act addressed any of these issues along with the issue of uninsurance. I think the first thing um, that is important implication of our book is not that we need to spend more in the social service area. As you said, it's just in this political climate in the United States with our history, that is really very unlikely, I think. However, the um, the idea really in the book is can we use, as you intimated, the health care dollar, which is, as you said, almost 20% of our GDP, can we use that significant investment and make it in the best interest of those providers to also address some of the social determinants of health and get involved with the services that are already funded at state level. We do have to think very closely about incentives, as other authors have really, and policymakers have really underscored. Our incentives now are still, for the most part, to provide more medical care. And that's an incentive from the supply side. Physicians and hospitals do better financially from that, but also from the demand side. Patients and families, we see ourselves as needing medicine. Uh, And that's a whole other thing that's quite different in the United States from, for instance, Scandinavia. So from both sides, we, we have an incentive system that asks us and pushes us to put more and more in medical care. How to redirect that? I think the ACA does hold some potential for us. 
my fear is that we may not go uh, far enough with this and it may nonetheless become very medicalized, but it does create a platform on which providers can collaborate. They can take a set pot of money for a group, a population, and they can be held accountable for some of the health indicators, not just the health care indicators. That is possible. It would be legal. It's regulatorily supported through the ACA. However, in the early rollout of the, of the ACA, most of the indicators on which these provider groups getting together are being evaluated on are still not health indicators. They're still services. Um, so we haven't yet gone to the place, or they're very much in nascent um, effort, where the organization is actually rewarded for what percent of their patients are obese, what percent of their patients are housed, uh, what percentage of their high school patients are on track to finish high school. This would be an extreme forwardness, um, and I think it will be decades before we think this way, thinking a little bit more holistically about all the things that can make their patients healthy, not just medical care. We're speaking today with Dr. Elizabeth Bradley, director of the Yale Global Health Initiative, and she is co-author of the book, The American Healthcare Paradox, Why Spending More is Getting Us Less. You know, so we're spending a lot of money. We're spending one out of five dollars or one out of we're 20 percent of the gdp and you know we're just coming out of a terrible depression recession however you want to label it and so what's the concern about the diminution of health spending so you've got part of it is you're going to shift some of those dollars but there's a big drive in this country to reduce cost is that going to unravel all of these initiatives uh, if we start to undermine the economic underpinnings of the country in some ways by starting to reduce cost. What are your thoughts on that? It is a razor's edge, really, uh, between people who have to pay the cost, employers who can't pay the cost anymore, and therefore they can't be competitive, so that hurts our economy. Or, well, we're going to save money in healthcare, and so now everybody who is actually employed in the healthcare sector, we're looking at a very large part of our industrial growth. One thing we might look at is maybe we're spending about what's right, but we haven't really thought through how to spend it as efficiently as we can, allocating it in a way that truly will get us this spending, but a much healthier population. That would be the goal. Well, Betsy, I think the book is all about paradox and also conundrums, I guess yeah. I would say. And let's turn to the ACOs just to get all of our alphabets <laughs> in there. And the accountable care organizations, which are you know generally described as organizations of grouped providers that hopefully more effectively coordinate healthcare for large populations of patients. And how effective have these organizations been at improving health outcomes uh, for their populations while seeking to contain costs. But what are your thoughts on that? The accountable care organizations, the evidence on their impact is very mixed. It, you would never look at the body of evidence coming out of our last, I don't know, three, four, five years of experimentation on this and say, that is going to transform health care. You just wouldn't. You know, on the margin with the right case management model and the proper navigation model in the right communities, they're finding modest savings. So that's just not something that I think we can hang our hat on and assume that's finally going to get us out of this conundrum, as you said. It draws much deeper than just reorganizing the deck chairs on the Titanic, really. How do we as a public, how do our communities first 
understand health. What do we demand when we have a hurt back? What do we want when we hurt our shoulder? In the American world, a lot of what the first thing happens is try to get in line for an orthopedic who will get you to an MRI who will likely land in surgery. We have story after story in the book of places where people chose a different path to try to look at a, I would say, more holistic, more behaviorally focused way to deal with that pain they may have in their shoulder. But that concept of how the community understands what healthcare can do for it, that's really core to solving and addressing this problem. It's going to be pretty hard, I think, to put aside our self-interest in whichever side of this industry we're, we're in and really look at, okay, health. That's a collective good, but how to get a governance structure around that where people can really collaborate. Dr. Bradley, I want to talk a little bit about the the American solution. <laughs> and you focused a lot on the Scandinavian countries, Norway and Sweden. Tell us about those and the challenge of sort of crosswalking those over to our unique culture here. Yeah, well, I think the challenges of really crosswalking some of what we've learned in Scandinavia to the United States um, has a lot to do with what our faith is in our government and what we would delegate to our government to do. That's one piece of it. And, you know, we use the World Values Survey to compare the United States to Scandinavia that basically characterizes people's root values about what they feel about their government, income inequality, a whole set of measures, one of which is trust. And Scandinavians are very high on trust, and Americans not so much. But we have some huge assets in the United States that are not anywhere else. We have tremendous amount of innovation and localism. When you get into the local, local communities, amazing things are happening, like the sea train, but we saw things throughout the country that were at a very local level where trust is high. And that, I think, unlike perhaps Scandinavia, our pace of change is very fast. Our freedom to make a new idea is very fast. As long as a local homogeneous community, we're pretty good. So I think in some ways we may come up with more innovative things than we see around the globe. That's where we ought to really be looking at, and even at the employer level. I mean, we have some tremendous things that employers are starting to think about and experiment with that I think you wouldn't see that kind of experimentation in other countries. Well, Betsy, I want to uh, continue that uh, move from the global to the local. And I read your analysis and your your thoughts on the Community Health Center move. Uh, Over time, legislation, funding initiatives, all well-intended had perhaps a unanticipated consequence of shifting the focus back uh, much more heavily to investment in the health care part of it and less in addressing the social determinants, food, yeah. housing, safety yeah. of the environment, and, and, and what a loss uh, that's been. I wonder uh, if you'd like this would just be in the opinion category. Do you think that the community health center movement 20 million patients expected to grow to 40 million uh, all across the country uh, has the potential to be one of these local community-based and very diverse communities strategies for beginning to shift some of that investment from health care to social services? Yes, I absolutely think it is central, huge potential. There are a couple of pieces that I think have to fall into place to get that locus to really flourish Um, looking at the social determinants. 
And what happened in the early days in the 60s that really shifted things was putting the community health center movement under, allowing its revenue stream to be fully dependent on Medicaid and Medicare, which could only pay for medical care things. When that happened, um, it just, you know, it changed the incentive system. It changed the psyche, not of the people, but just of what really was possible within organizational constraints. Today, we may see a loosening of that. It's possible, I don't know how far the country will go, but states are starting to be quite innovative with their Medicaid programs. There are a lot of more waivers that can happen for dual eligibles or for Medicaid-only recipients in which the dollar could be used to do the combination that a community health center might tell you is going to be the most effective. Uh, not only the medical care, not only the referral to the hospital, but potentially looking at housing. And I, I call our attention to this uh, 10th decile project in L.A., um, which worked with hospitals to identify the top 10% of homeless people and basically used Medicare, Medicaid dollars to work on the homelessness and other social support services through community centers first before the referral to the hospital. And they just had tremendous savings. I mean, it's only been a couple of years, but they are quoting health care costs decreasing by 72%. So I feel like the provider group of community health centers is exactly where it could be, but we do need the payer piece of it to align with health, not health care, in order to allow these centers to really, I think, flourish in what their vision has always been. We've been speaking with Dr. Elizabeth Bradley, Director of the Yale Global Health Initiative and Faculty Director of the Global Health Leadership Institute. She's co-author of the book, The American Healthcare Paradox, Why Spending More is Getting Us Less. You can learn more about her work by going to ghli.yale.edu, or you can follow her on Twitter at EHBYale. Betsy, Thank you so much for joining us on Conversations. Thank you both. Very fun. Conversations on Healthcare, we want our audience to be truly in the know when it comes to the facts about healthcare reform and policy. Lori Robertson is an award winning journalist and managing editor of FactCheck.org, a nonpartisan, nonprofit consumer advocate for voters that aim to reduce the level of deception in U.S. politics. Lori, what have you got for us this week? Well, did the Affordable Care Act increase income tax brackets, capital gains, and estate taxes in 2014? That's what a viral email says, but it's not true. The anonymous message claims that several taxes went up on January 1, 2014 because of the Affordable Care Act, but none of the taxes listed had anything to do with the health care law. Most were part of the fiscal cliff package that Congress passed on January 1, 2013. For instance, the top income tax rate did go back up to 39.6% for singles making more than $400,000 a year and couples earning more than $450,000. That increase was part of the fiscal cliff deal in 2013. Capital gains and dividend tax rates also went up under that deal, and not as much as the viral message claims. The top capital gains rate and dividend rates are both now 20% for those earning more than $400,000 or $450,000 a year. The email wrongly says that the estate tax went from 0% to 55%. The tax is still 0% for anyone who dies this year and has an estate worth less than $5.3 million. The top rate is, thanks to the fiscal cliff deal, 40%. This message goes on to claim that the tax increases it lists were, quote, passed with only Democratic votes. 
not true at all. The fiscal cliff deal passed by a vote of 89 to 8 in the Senate with 40 Republicans in favor. In the House, 85 Republicans voted in favor. The ACA does include some tax increases, such as a 3.8% tax on net investment income and an additional Medicare tax of 0.9% for those earning more than $200,000 a year or $250,000 for couples. But that increase is nowhere to be found in this bogus viral message. And that's my fact check for this week. I'm Lori Robertson, managing editor of factcheck.org. Factcheck.org is committed to factual accuracy from the country's major political players and is a project of the Annenberg Public Policy Center at the University of Pennsylvania. If you have a fact that you'd like checked, email us at chcradio.com. We'll have factcheck.org's Lori Robertson check it out for you here on Conversations on Healthcare. Each week, Conversations highlights a bright idea about how to make wellness a part of our communities and everyday lives. Primary care providers have their work cut out when seeing patient after patient all day long. In brief visits, it can be difficult to cover all of the important bases, and often signs of drug and alcohol dependence can get overlooked. And many patients are put off by lengthy questionnaires that are aimed at determining whether you have a problem with drinking or using drugs. Researchers at the Boston University School of Public Health have determined that asking one simple question could actually determine the level of a patient's possible drug or alcohol dependency. For alcohol use, participants were asked how many times in the past year they had consumed five or more drinks in a day. For other substance use, they were asked, how many times in the past year have you used an illegal drug or used a prescription medication for non-medical reasons? The researchers compare alcohol screening responses with alcohol dependence reference standards and drug screening questions with drug dependence standards. The single alcohol screening question detected 88% of those with alcohol dependence. The drug question detected 97% of those with drug dependence. Lead researcher Dr. Richard Sates says this could provide a valuable rapid assessment for primary care providers to help patients and get them to the treatment options they need. A single, simple question aimed at revealing drug or alcohol dependency that could help primary care providers diagnose the problem more readily, getting patients sooner to the help they need. Now that's a bright idea. This is Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Margaret Flinter. And I'm Mark Maselli. Peace and health. Conversations on Healthcare broadcast from the campus of WESU at Wesleyan University, streaming live at WESUFM.org, and brought to you by the Community Health Center.